0: Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, the host of this series. Today's lecture is by Dr. Frank Wren, and its title, Can Anyone Calculate Tree Stability? Dr. Wren is a graduate of the Physics Department at Heidelberg University, where his thesis was on drill resistance measurements. He founded the WrenTech company and has patents on the resistograph resistance measuring drill and stress wave tomography. His introduction is by Dr. Brian Kane from the University of Massachusetts. This lecture was originally presented at the ISA International Meeting in Providence, Rhode Island in July 2009.: Frank's going to um, offer to the counterpoint. Uh, Andreas' previous uh, presentation on calculating tree safety. So,
1: thank you for this introduction. Please excuse my poor English. German was my first foreign language coming from the countryside in Germany, a rural area where we mostly talk strong dialect. So, German was my first foreign language, English the second, and French the third. So, I will try to do my best and... Probably I should ask Sharon to give you a double CEU if you really are able to follow my talk. <laughs> Some time ago, I visited Arizona, which is a very nice place, a little bit dry, not too many trees there. And in the town, I saw this, and I thought, oh, probably it's better to place my rental car beside a tree instead of a saguara but very nice plants. But... Coming into California, I thought, parking my car beside a tree is not always good, except there is a hammer beside that. who takes the load. I will try to explain a little bit of the basics that every expert has to take into account when he uses technical equipment and when he tries to calculate stability, safety, something like that, of a tree. and. <clears throat> Having studied physics, I quite u- I'm quite used to using equations and numbers and all these things, but I must say most of the tree expert reports don't really have to use it, but they have to be aware of it. It gets difficult as soon as you start calculating precise numbers and as you are going to absolute values, absolute measures for strength, wind load, and all these things. So. You have to learn a little bit, so probably I shall ask Sharon for even give you three times CEUs for this lecture. First I will go into the experts general obligations, the prerequisites for using technical equipment, some error calculations, so some formula will be presented, and then how to assess the safety. Different ways are used on the market since more than 25 years. Some of them come from Germany. Some of them from other countries. And finally, I will give a short scope on the possibilities and limitations of some widely used technical equipment on the market. First of all, I would like to make clear what my two lectures in the morning already said, that we are really focusing on rare cases. Urban tree safety inspection is a very small niche market in a very small industry. And within this small niche, risk experts using technical equipment are really focusing on rare and special cases. So we are not dealing with the most trees, but only with very few important ones. And only then, probably, it's worth spending a little bit more money than normally for inspection. What is a very important thing is that these trees that have to be inspected regularly by technical equipment and that have to be probably be evaluated due to risk and safety issues, these old trees are mostly not circular-shaped. They are not round. They are damaged in some kind. They have decay, a lot of knots, and they don't correspond to all the trees that are used in the technical models of the scientific area. Most of the scientists working with trees like Ken James already described this morning, most of them, in the calculation models, they are using poles and not a real tree. The real tree is totally different. And if you have a look on the cross-sections of old trees, mostly they are not round. So most of the models, how to calculate strength of a cross-section and how to derive measures on safety, they don't apply for that. So on many, many points, we have to take into account that what we are doing is a very rough model, and nothing more. We are not precise. We cannot be precise because nature is too complex in this aspect. Probably it's more complex to um, determine the dynamic safety of a tree within a wind than to calculate the uh, route to the moon for a special. That's quite easy. You can use it. You can do it with an HP uh, small computer. Many technical inspections, in addition, this has to be taken into account, many technical inspections are not done by the expert in order to learn more about the tree, because in many cases, the experts are well-trained and experienced, and they know what is in the tree, and they know if it's dangerous or not. But they need a written proof, because no one believes them what they just tell. And I think in Germany... Since 1988, I'm inspecting trees, and I developed the resistograph in 1986, so we have quite a lot of experiences there. I think more than 50 or 60 percent of the applications of the machines are just driven by the need of having a written report, just by asking from judges, insurance companies and others, and clients even, that want to have something objective written down there, not only your opinion. We don't believe you. We only believe in machines. And that's typical German. I'm not sure if this is the same here in the States. In Germany, it's very common that the people ask for machines because they more believe in machines than in people. The boundary conditions that every expert has to be aware of are not too many. First of all, an expert does not have to be a scientist. An experienced practitioner can probably do the same work, probably even better, because they had a lot of um, experience in the background. We often see people coming freshly from the university, studied forestry or biology or something like that, and they go directly into the area of expert reporting. And the suggestions these people do, what to do with the tree after the report, are in many cases, not very helpful because they have never stand on the tree with a chainsaw. They never really addressed all these practical aspects. So it makes sense to combine practical experience and scientific background. But for this, you don't have to study physics, I'm sure. As I already mentioned, many ap- reports are just done in order to be safe and to have a written report, to written document. And probably this is one of the biggest steps in preserving old trees from being cut. A lot of old trees are just cut because the people are not aware of what possibilities are there to preserve it and to ensure that it's still safe. And probably, once again, this is different in Germany. You're only allowed to let an old tree stand there if you have a written proof from a machine that shows it seems to be safe. The main obligations of an expert in the report are the report has to be clear and comprehensible conclusions have to be done. It is very important that other people are able to really understand the report and can follow the steps of the argumentation. The expert does not have to follow the main trend of the market. If 90% of the people believe in a threshold value of, let's say, one-third of the intact wall, over the radius, that is the measure for intact tree or not. If you as an expert are convinced that it's not right, go your way. But be sure that you are able to explain that. You don't have to follow all the people you know. 70 years ago, a lot of Germans followed the wrong direction. And only some of them had the strength to say, that's not my opinion. I will go another way. They had been right. Probably they did not survive all. The expert report, and this is very important, even if you go another way, not the way that most of the experts on the market go, the expert report has to be verifiable in detail if it's convincing or not. Other people have to be able to follow your thoughts in all the steps of your argumentation. Since the 1980s, we have more and more technical equipment available on the market, and they are largely used, meanwhile, Um, For example, the resistograph, I don't know if someone of you is aware of, there are nearly 10,000 devices on the market worldwide used, not only for tree inspection, but for poles and timber buildings and all other stuff from wood. But there are uh, quite a lot of machines out there used on trees. And as soon as people start calculating, they need numbers. Numbers coming from machines, from measurements but if you want to measure the tree you have to understand what is a measurement and measurements may sound easy but they can be very difficult and so I'm very sorry but I have to bother you with some basic things from the DIN which is the German standard similar to the ANSI the ANSI standard covering the same topic is mentioned down there if you start measuring the tree you really always have to take into account these three points You have to give a complete result. That means providing quantitative information about accuracy. And you have to show how the values that that you are given, even simple values, are derived from the simple measurement. It must be clearly stated in which way the complete measured result is obtained from all these variables, including results and the uncertainties. If there is a method on the market, if you are a municipal arborist working for an authority, and there is an expert providing you an expert report, and you calculate the stability or the safety of the tree with five digits after the comma. We have that on the market. And then you have the right to ask, what is the way how you achieve this precision? Where is the reliability? You have the right to ask that. And if the expert is not able to give you that, reject the report, and don't pay. And to do that, you have to learn a little bit about what is resolution, what is precision, what is error calculation, and error propagation. Sorry for that. Once again, another C U will be added. <laughs> error calculation. And I will use a simple e- example, which is the height over diameter ratio. It was already mentioned several times this morning. It is a well-known ratio in forestry since more than 100 years. And there's an, a funny thing that 2007, Sitki from um, Czech Republic, I think, published a formula how to calculate the critical height over diameter ratio for trees. And it's funny that his result is 70 as a critical border. As soon as the slenderness of the tree is higher than 70, he argues, the tree is getting... Unstable and dangerous, and this relatively good fits to the experiences of many forestry people. But the assumptions he made have been wrong. Finally, he got to the correct result. I don't know why exactly. He assumed the wood strength homogeneously distributed over the stem, and he assumed a drag coefficient of one. And that's not correct, as we know. We saw it already in the talks before. So, but in the average, we can calculate approximately that there is a slenderness value that could be critical. So, slenderness and tree age. There's a publication from Klaus Matek indicating that a slenderness value of higher than 50 for solitary trees might be the dangerous threshold. I'm not sure if this is correct. I'll just show you these results. They have been published and they are already used by many experts. And I know about really thousands of trees in cities in urban areas that have been felt due to having a H over D ratio higher than 50 because referring to these publications. So it seems it could make sense to assess this slenderness value, which is very simple. You just measure the height and you measure the diameter. Is it simple? I'm not sure. I will just show you. Some time ago, I had an training for 15 tree experts. And on the table, you see number 1 to 15. These are the numbers of the experts. I don't tell the names. It would not be very nice. The diameter that they measured and the height of the same tree. They measured the same tree with the same tools. And on the right column, you see the height over diameter ratio. And the average value of all these obtained value from the same tree is 52. Is the tree stable, is it safe, or is it unsafe? That's an interesting thing to go into further in detail. The tree was not circular shaped. It was an old urban tree. And what is the diameter of the tree at the bottom right? It's impossible to measure the diameter of this tree. If you give 10 or 20 people a caliper measuring the diameter of this tree, you will have 10 or 20 different measures. That will be the result. So what's the diameter of the tree? to put into the calculation of the height over over diameter ratio. There is none. Consequently, we have an error. That means we have deviation between different people, between different ways of how to assess the tree. Even if you, the same person, measure the same tree on three different days, three different times, you will not have the same results all the time. Not because the tree changes, but because it's impossible in irregular shaped trees to really assess exactly what is the diameter. So we have an error in that. The same we have measuring the tree height. We have an error in that. We cannot avoid it. So when we have a look on these arrows on the right, you see three columns, the diameter, d, the height, and the h over d diameter. And I plotted up there the uh, mean percentage deviation of the individual measurement from the mean value. And let's assume that the mean value of these 15 people is the nearly real value of the tree. That's the case in many cases, but not always. Let's assume that it's more simple. Otherwise, the equations are getting bigger than the screen. If we do that, we see that the average variation between the individual value and the mean for the diameter is about plus-minus 6%. In the height, it's plus-minus 10%. In the height over diameter ratio, it's plus-minus 13%. The standard deviation, which is another measure, plotted down there on the left, to describe the variation between measurements is 4, 3, and 8, equivalent to 7, 11, and 15%. So once again, a simple measurement, but we still have a lot of variation in that. Not because the people are measuring wrong, just because nature is so complex, even in such a simple case. So the basic rule behind that is that If you combine different values of a tree to one final result, the errors sum up. That means the variation of the result, height over diameter ratio, the variation of it is the sum of the variation of the individual formula, of the individual variables. That means in this simple case, plus minus 10% approximately for the height, plus minus 5% approximately. For the diameter, so the result has an uncertainty of plus-minus 15%. This is the mean percentage of the mean deviation. That means that does not cover all the values, and I will show you what that means. These are the 15 points dotted. The x-axis, the abscissa, is the expert number, and on the ordinate, we have the the height over diameter ratio. And you see, the blue line is the mean value, The blue line is the mean value describing the assumed real value. It's 52, slightly above the so-called threshold. The red lines above and below that indicate the blue line plus and minus the standard deviation. And it shows that one, two, three, four values of the measured eight over diameter ratios are outside this area, this range of the middle value, mean value, plus-minus standard deviation. If you have a look on all the individual values and the mean percentage error that we add to the values, this is plus-minus 15%, you see that there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 values where the mean value is not within the range of the individual measurement, plus-minus the error span. That means these 8 people if they say the real value is my value plus minus 15%, they are wrong. Consequently, if you want to have the real value covered in your value, in your measured value, plus minus a certain span, you have to give the double mean error deviation. That means if your mean deviation is plus minus 15%, if you want to have the real value with a very high uh, reliability being covered in your span, your value plus minus, you have to take the double value. That means you have to say, okay, my value is, for example, 52 plus minus 30%. This is the honest and real result of this calculation. So, what to do with the tree of the height over diameter ratio of 52? Shall we cut it? Is it unsafe? When we regard this error fluctuation, we shall be honest to say it could be 35 in an extreme value when I overestimated the height and underestimated the uh, the diameter. It could probably be the other way around. So something like that happened. Oh, sorry, I was just mixing it up. If you overestimated the height, you are at 65. If you underestimated it, you could be at 35. So that means if you give this simple value you should be sure about the variation, and you should be honest to really show the variation in your report. If you just say the value is 52, cut the tree, that's, that's not fair, and that's not correct, because the variation is there. You cannot avoid it. It's just given by nature. And it's not because the caliper is not good enough. The caliper can be precise down to a micron. It doesn't help if the tree is so unregularly shaped. And in addition, if you ask, 10 people from Japan to measure the same tree, and then you ask 10 people from Holland to measure the same tree, you have different values. So the diameter of the Dutch trees is always a little bit smaller because they are, in the average, 20 centimeters higher, and their breast height measurement is just another thing. It's very simple. Really, it, it sounds funny, but it, that's happening. If you compare, the, the Dutch people are the, the tallest in Europe, in the average, several centimeters higher than the others. And if you compare the breast height diameter values, they are different. Dutch trees are more slender. <laughs> the real value to the real formula to calculate the, uh, the percentage error of uh, measurement was found by Gauss some hundred, 300 years ago. And I will ask Sharon for an extra CEU who can repeat this equation tomorrow to me. So, generally speaking, that's the simple thing. If you combine many, many variables to one value at the end, the errors sum up. That's the point. That means the more you combine together, the more errors potentially sum up. That does not mean that every measurement is wrong. The 52 can probably be precise, uh, precise to down to one, uh, 1% from the, from the real value, but you don't know it. As, soon, uh, as long as you do not measure the tree 50 times again. Make a statistical approach and then check what is the real value. If you just measure the tree once, once, and mostly you do it, I don't expect that you will approach the tree 50 times to have a statistical uh, bias going away because your customer will say, I don't pay you 50 times for the measuring the same tree. Um, so that means if you measure once, you cannot be sure, so be honest and... Say something about the potential variation from the real values. Meanwhile, in Germany, due to a law, uh, due to a court case, municipalities start to measure the slenderness of branches. It's a mess. There was an expert calling that the uh, slenderness of a branch can be measured and is a measure for safety of the branch. And due to the fact that a woman was killed by a big branch, an intact branch, and so the final result was more and more municipalities are forced to measure branch diameters and branch length, which causes a lot amount of money. The municipalities don't have it. What's the result? They cut the trees. So um, doing and applying technical equipment and calculating doesn't often really help the tree. In addition, you have to be aware of the types of errors. I just talked about just stochastic error, and I said that we assume that these 15 results, these 15 experts measured the tree, and they had stochastically distributed errors. That means the middle point shows, uh, the the middle uh, and the left um, graphic shows stochastic error. That means Some experts are measuring too high, some are measurements uh, too low, and in the average, somehow they meet the, uh, the center point. That means if we average all the points together, the mean value would be the correct value. If your machine is measuring wrong and you're not aware of it and your machine has a systematic error in addition, then you can have a stochastically showing and looking distribution of your values, but the real value is not the average of it. And you will only be aware of this when you have your machine calibrated. But if your machine cannot be calibrated, is there any way out? No, there's none. You have to be aware of this thing. You have to know what the properties of your machines are. And I must say, a lot of machines used in the agricultural area cannot be calibrated, and they are like this. They inherit a lot of systematic errors, and the results are always far away from reality. But they are still used, and most of the people really don't understand. They are not aware about that. I will show some examples later on. In addition, you have to be aware that resolution is not precision. This is an image of a cross-section of a spruce, I think. Yeah, it's a spruce with a uh, non-concentric decay. And these are four different stress-wave tomography images These are the same values just displayed in different resolutions. Bottom left, you see one pixel per point, and top right, you see 20 pixels per point. Is the information better when the resolution is higher? No, because the content of the stress wave tomography doesn't change. It just looks nicer. It's just an artifact, and... The program's allowed to have and to show up this high resolution, but it doesn't make sense. The resolution can even mislead people reading your report. Oh, looks very precise, but it's not that precise. So be honest and give the resolution that is really appropriate. In this case, it would be the bottom right, which is approximately 10 points per pixel in this case. In stress wave tomography, there are so many uncertainties that it doesn't make sense to show a high resolution in the picture. So a high resolution does not automatically um, mean a higher precision. It is not related to reliability. Reliability and precision of a machine really depends on uh, the deviation between different measurements of the same system. And stress wave tomography, as I've already explained, are a typical example for that. So how to assess the tree safety? Based on all this knowledge, we have to be aware about measurement errors, we have to be aware about propagation of errors and combination and accumulation of errors. An engineer would say safety is very simple. It's strength over load. If the bridge is three times stronger than the average load, we have a safety of three. It's funny that the German standard for timber buildings takes the mean bending strength of a wooden species, divides it by seven, and says... That's the standard value. That means they have a safety factor of 7 in the background in order to be safe because they don't want to get sued if a building crashes down. So this depends strongly on the material. In concrete is different. In wood they used 7. I don't know why. Probably they didn't understand it better. It was 50 years ago and a lot of machines have not been available on the market in that time. So when and why do trees fail? Very simple. A simple model Nice picture from Glassmatic in this case. The crown catches the wind force. We have already been informed about that, and the tree will break on its weakest point. And weak, the point can be weak because of the size of the point. If the stem is damaged down there, or if the roots are cut already, these are weak points due to the um, design. And the weak point can be weak material. Deteriorated by decay, for example. So the size still seems to be correct, but the material property is not strong enough. There is an interesting thing that it seems to be that the natural construction of trees is made to stand, to withstand storms up to approximately 1 to 100, uh, 100 to 120 kilometers per hour. So approximately uh, 04, 12, 100. 30, I think it's approximately. And this study from Leibers, 1983, published uh, is a very nice example showing that if we have wind speeds over 150 kilometers per hour, we don't have to care about because even very intact trees can break. So it's not our fault if such a tree, such an intact tree, breaks down and hurts something. So what we mainly have to deal about is with the wind speeds up to approximately 120 kilometers per hour. And if we have a close look how the trees are breaking, it tells a lot about the internal structure, if it was decayed and how it behaves. wood is totally anisotropic, you know, and the, um, the properties of the material are strongly differing the tension strength, which is the far best of the, of the wood, is much higher than the compression strength, and the weakest is the torsion strength. So as far as we realized in these last 25 years approximately, we found that most of the trees are, are breaking in a combination of dynamic and torsion uh, loading. So there's a lot of stuff in the uh, literature how the uh, cross-sections are flattening and how different failure modes are occurring. There are many different ones, and I don't go into detail with that. What is important is that you, are, uh, that you have open eyes to see early signs of failure. That means fiber buckling, cracks, horizontal cracks on the tangent side, for example, because these indicate previous overloading of the tree. So have a look on the tree to uh, see signs of potential previous overload. That can be learned. It's not that difficult. You just have to read the body language of the tree and especially to understand the bark and its structure. So I don't go into detail these things. Once again, an engineer would say, okay, we would like to assess the safety of a structure. First we measure the strength of it and then we estimate the load that it will be um, used for. So, strength of the tree, modulus of rupture of the stem, for example, and we divide that by the wind load, the wind load that is working at the stem. So, what is the modulus of rupture, what is the strength of a stem? It's very simple. Pull the stem and measure it. It sounds simple. The point is that millions of dollars are spent every year to make timber grading machines better and better because they cannot measure modulus of rupture. They cannot measure strength without destroying the beam. But they won't destroy the beam because then they destroy the value. And we won't do that at the tree. If you want to measure the strength of a beam, if you want to measure the strength of the stem, you have to bend it until it breaks. Then you know the strength of the beam. If you are measuring deflection, you are measuring the modulus of elasticity, MOE. There is a relation between modulus of elasticity and the strength, but this relation is not linear, and that's the problem. In addition, most of the models that are used in the literature, in physics, we would say they cannot be applied on trees because they have been made and they have been partially invented by Gauss 300 years ago. They are only working for systems with small deflections, Small deflections means less than one or two degrees. Our trees are deflecting much more in the wind, and the damage occurs in much more deflection than one or two degrees. That means most of the mechanical models, most of the theoretical models really don't, don't apply for the real tree under real wind load. I think Ken James mentioned that already this morning. That's very simple, and if you study physics, you learn that at the first, in the first semester. These are theoretical models describing simple movements, but they don't apply to dynamic and especially to torsional systems. So, all these numbers, all these values, don't apply to the real tree. The pulling test, they are measuring MOE, modulus of elasticity, that means the stiffness of the wood. And this is strongly different in birch, in, in many other trees, in, in oak. Oak is more stiff. Birch is quite flexible. MOR, what we need to relate it to wind load, can only be measured when you break the stem. So we don't want to do that for the trees. We have to find another way around. I will explain this correlation between MOE and MOR by this example. This is a typical measure of MOE and MOR of beams. They took beams, they measured the deflection, and then they... Hired the load until it broke, and they correlated it. And you see for one value of MOE, for example, the red marked line, nearly 11,000, there is a large span of possible and different strength values. In this case, it's plus minus approximately 30%. That means if you're measuring MOE of a stem and conclude in a linear extrapolation on the modulus of rupture, on the strength of the stem, you have an uncertainty of plus minus 30%. This is only due, only valid for intact wood, no decay, and no knots. As soon as you come to knots, as soon as you come to fiber fluctuations, as soon as you come to decay, the correlation coefficient describing the precision of the extrapolation from MOE to MOR drops down to 0.2 or below 0.2. That means more than 80% of the, of the variance in the MOR, in the strength, cannot be explained by measuring MOE. Consequently, we have a variance in the MOR, in the strength of the tree, by more than plus-minus 80% when we are measuring MOE by pulling tests. That does not mean that the machines are not good. They are very precise and very Uh, reliably measuring, but the nature is so different, and in this case, very complex. This is a typical um, slide for the distribution of different strength values. You see the tangent strength starts up from, in spruce, from 40 up to 160, the bending strength with a main value about 80, and the compression strength a little bit lower. And this shows a typical... um, within nature, in this case, only five trees of spruce. So we have a strong limitation on the calculation of MOR by measuring stiffness. And they are depending on many factors. And there is a nice publication from Watt showing that the MOE, the modulus of elasticity, significantly was related to more than 11 variables, including the temperature. So it makes a big difference if you are measuring a tree in winter or in summer. It makes a big difference if the moisture content is high or low. So if you are using such a technical um, device, please always make sure that you, at the end, really you mention all these limitation factors. In addition, if you scan the complete tree with an X-ray machine, which is standing in Brisbane, for example, and you map density, microfibril ang- angle, and stiffness you see there's a large variety of values within the stems of different species. In conifers, for example, you have very low density in the center and high density in the outside. In ring porous trees, it's the other way around. Ring porous trees most of the time have a high density inside and a low density outside. So the internal fluctuation of values is very broad. And the same occurs between trees and even more between species. So measuring tree bending strength over MOE is very limited in precision and reliability. It's nothing more than a rough estimation. That's not bad, but it's not better. So that was the strength of the tree. The wind load is the other side. The wind load can be calculated quite simple. It's the crown area A times the drag coefficient times the wind speed to the power of 2 and the density of the air. And Calculated it in this example for a small tree, about 80 square meters of crown area, we have a wind load of approximately 2.2 tons. It's not that bad, and it seems to be quite reasonable. It seems to be. This does not take into account porosity of the crown, dynamics, precision, swaying, torsion, damping, errors, all the other things, and I will show you some. All the values that have been published yet, real values measured in wind tunnels, are mostly, as already mentioned this morning, done uh, for small trees, very small trees. This does not apply to street trees. If you check the wind profile, for example, the real wind profile measured over the height of the tree is like that. Totally different than the calculated one here. The real wind profile is quite complicated. If you take a photograph of a tree from two sides, you will realize that the crown area may differ from 10 20 or even 30%. So which picture you take for assessing the crown area and to calculate the wind load. The biggest one, but often you cannot, call, you cannot make a picture from every side because there are buildings standing around. So you take the picture from this side where it's easy to assess, but you're not sure that if this is really the side of the crown where you have the biggest area. So we have a typical variance in the crown area by about 20%. The drag coefficient already mentioned this morning starts at approximately 1. It strongly depends on the wind speed and it goes down to 0.4, 0.3, sometimes 0.1, strongly depending on foliage on time of the year. In November, for example, the branches behave different than in April because the moisture content in the water is different and so the stiffness behavior is different. So strongly depending on many, many different factors, and the, the uncertainty in the drag coefficient is far more than plus-minus 30%. If you check that for different trees, you'll see that the behavior, the dependency of the drag coefficient on the wind speed differs from species to species. You cannot give a single mean curve how the drag coefficient depends on the different wind speeds. So this is different from tree species to species. And in addition, the turbulence factors that have have to be added are very different because the architecture of the tree determines how the turbulences behind the tree are altering the drag. This was already shown partially before, and I don't go into detail because of that. And the dynamical factor that already was mentioned by Ken James, I really loved his um, presentation this morning, it was great. So a much better approach to the real wind load would be this equation here. Once again, another CEU, if you reply that to me tomorrow. And um, the problem is that it's so complex to calculate that that really no one does it. And I think it doesn't make sense. If you add up all the different variations here, as I mentioned, if you combine many different factors together, the errors sum up. If we do that, we get a variation of the bending moment at the stem base of plus minus 100%, even if our measurement machines are very precise. So there is a natural deviation in there. We cannot go around that. And that is not because we are measuring wrong or the machines are not good. It's just because nature is so as it is. Mm -hmm. So wind load by nature, wind load analysis is very limited in accuracy. If we calculate the static safety, that means we add, in addition, wind load and the strength uncertainty we are coming to a value of more than plus minus 200%. If I would like to sell my house and I go to an expert, a building expert, and I said, please calculate, give me your value of my house. And he says, well, $350,000 minus 200%. <laughs> would you pay money for such a report? I'm not. And because of that, I think we should be honest if we calculate strength and wind load we should be honest to uh, mention the variation. That is inherited in nature. Once again, it's not because we are doing something wrong. It's just natural behavior. In addition, we have to take into account that torsion is very important and the um, dynamic and the combination of both. There are many studies showing that torsional um, strength is really the weakest point of the tree. The consequence is that many people say that we have to check, not to measure the tree, the measure the strength, but we have to check the geometry of the tree because the tree measures the wind load. And there was a fine publication from Tuluski, 1985 already, published, and he showed that the cambium growth is really triggered by mechanical load. The cambium growth is triggered and strongly influenced by the mechanical load. And consequently, There is a concept, some people call it VTA, some people call it different, of inspecting the tree visually and reading the signs, the shape of the tree as a measure of the load. Somehow that's right. The problem is in urban areas, damages occur quickly and the trees do not have enough time to adapt themselves to the changing load and the changing damages. That means we have to not only read the tree, but we have to inspect it internally because we don't know exactly what happens. And the changes are so quick that the trees are not able to adapt themselves quick enough. So are there any numerical failure criteria using this approach that means understanding the geometry outside and inside the tree? Let's see. If the tree is getting more hollow, for sure it's getting less safe. The question is, where is the boundary? Where is the threshold when the tree is getting unsafe? There are many calculations showing that as soon as the ratio of T, the intact wall, over R, the radius, is approaching 70, is, is approaching one-third, then the strength overload of the cross-section may be critical. And this is due to the fact that the torsional strength is very small, and the tangential tension is very high, approximately, or starting very high, that's the black line, from approximately 70% hollowness. That means one-third radius. But we have thousands of trees standing out there with a residual wall and over, ra- over a radius ratio of one-tenth. Why are they still standing there? And this clearly shows that this threshold is not a single value that you just can apply to all the trees. In addition, in many cases, it was shown that this statistical approach I wouldn't say it is wrong, but it's not correct. It is not correct because many points are missing. They have not been plotted because they would disturb your view on the picture. There are still many trees. This is the plot published in 1993, I think, indicating that the broken black dots, the broken trees, are always with the T over R ratio below one-third, What is not correct because even intact trees can break under wind load. And a lot of trees below this ratio one third are still standing, probably some of them more than 100 years, and this is not explained in there. There are several statistical approaches. I would just like to focus on these things. It is strongly depending on where the decay is in the location, like in the question of how much is your house worth, it's three points, location, 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 and the same is for decay, it's location, location, location. It strongly depends not only the size of the decay, the location of the decay is important. And if you have, for example, this, this is a green cross-section, totally intact, and the curve is a little bit probably difficult to understand, I would like to explain it to you. There is a scale 100% in the center, and 0% down there, 50 is the dotted line in the middle. This is a green, totally intact cross-section of a tree, and on the right you see, in the center, we have a decay. The red line indicates the strength of the decayed cross-section as compared to the green one. And you see the red curve is approximately at 94%. That means if T over R is... 0.5, that means half of the radius is decayed, the tree only loses 6% of its stability of this cross section. That is not much. So if the tree is hollow, that's not dangerous, it only loses 6% of its strength. If T over R is one third, on the left you see that, the strength loss is 20%. It's only 20%. That's not much. If the T over R is one-tenth, that means the intact wall is only one-tenth of the radius, the strength loss is 70%. And somewhere in between that, there may be a threshold. But which urban tree is looking like that? Which urban tree is concentric? Which urban tree is concentrically decayed? No one. I didn't see any tree in urban areas looking like that. So this model doesn't apply to urban trees that we have normally to inspect. As I mentioned, the location is important. On the left, you see once again, T over R is one-third. On the right, you see... Oh, sorry, there's the wrong, um, it's the wrong headline here. It's not, it's not one-tenth. Here, we have the same size of the decay, just in another location. The strength loss goes down to 50%. Here, we had only 20%. So, the same size of the decay, just in another location in the cross-section leads to a a 2.5 times higher strength loss of this this cross-section. It strongly depends on where the location of the decay is, how much it influences the stability. So it's not residual wall thickness. It's the location and the geometry of the decay. Consequently, it doesn't make sense only to drill on one spot. You cannot calculate tree stability if you just drill on one spot. That doesn't help too much. I don't go too detail in these things. I would just like to mention, if you use me- technical methods, should be, you should be aware about the principles and the limitations. The drill resistance method, for example, I just show you some um, curves. If you have an electronically working machine that is running and recording in a high re- resolution, you can have a correlation to the density of the wood which is very high, 0.9 nearly in R-square, or even higher depending on the machine. But there are many different machines available on the market, and you should be aware of the differences in these machines. I don't call uh, the names of them. I just would like to show you. These are three profiles from three different drilling machines available on the market. There are more than six different machines from three different companies available. And these are three profiles drilled on the same spot, the profiles are totally looking different, so depending on the machine version, you have a different level of information, and you should be aware about that. There are machines available on the market that are made to find hollow voids in utility poles, but other people apply them to trees. If you drill into a conifer, for example, here, in the center part The needle may follow always in the early wood for a long time. The profile drops down to zero. And I can tell you hundreds, probably thousands of conifer trees in Germany had been felt because the people thought, oh, it's decayed inside. No, it's not. It was not decayed. It was just very soft. And the machine was not sensitive enough to show up these differences, slight differences between intact and soft and decayed. So be aware of the limitations of your machine, especially when they are not measuring electronically and if they are not measuring linear. That does not mean that the machine is bad or good, but if the machine was made to find hollow spots, and it does it, but then applied to trees to find slight differences between decay and incipient decay and intact wood, it's just a wrong application of this machine. So the machine is good and still doing its job, But if you apply it on the wrong place, and if you try to overstress the interpretation of it, then it doesn't help. In addition, we have to drill a lot of times to find the correct information on the cross-section. And because of that, in the 1990s, a lot of frustration due to uh, wrong drilling, we developed the tomography image. The tomography, the stress wave tomography, is an attempt to have a feeling about what happens in the cross-section. It does not map wood condition. Within the area of decay or cracks, there is no information coming out of a stress wave tomography. If you see these cross-sections here, totally intact, just some cracks in the center, there's a red dot in there. The same here. Some cracks in the center, there's a red dot in there. A stress wave tomography image shows something like the mechanical compoundness. The only thing that we can sure be about is the green area. The intact part, there we have values. There are no values coming from the decayed part. So in the decayed part, there is no resolution and there is no information of what's going on there. Stress wave tomography does not show wood condition, but furthermore, the compoundness, how the wood is connected together. And the resolution, as I mentioned already before, is a crucial point. In addition, you can show the results in different ways. If you would like to have this tree felt, give the customer the top left image. It's the same image as bottom down there. The same values, just using other colors. It strongly depends on the colors how to interpret the uh, result. So it's the same result just represented in different colors. So a proper use of the method is required and it really is there's a big need of understanding the methods, how they work. So I skip that. That's my last slide on the methods, and then the conclusions will come. This is an application of relative pulling tests. 40 trees, same species, standing along a a, a street. Some of them had been cut by uh, groundworks, uh, had lost some roots by, uh, by groundworks, and the municipality wanted to know exactly which trees have been affected. These are plots similar to the plots that Ken James uh, showed this morning. That means here, that's the tree standing. Oops. And that's the way how the different sensors in the top and in the base of the tree are moving. And if you have sensors on the base and on the top of the tree, you can very good compare what's happening in the ground, what is happening in the stem. So so (coughs) there's really a good sense of application of relative pulling tests, No number is calculated, no stiffness, no strength, no safety is calculated but comparison between different trees of the same site with the same conditions really helps you to identify these trees that are infected by um, root diseases or that have lost roots by cutting through uh, due to the uh, construction works. So a proper application of the method is good, you just need to understand the method to know exactly its limitations, its boundary conditions and its possibilities. So, The final conclusion, can anyone calculate tree safety? Somehow, yes and no. I think many many experts already do it, but the achievable results are far away from being precise and reliable. So it really can only be an assisting criterion for experienced experts. The tree risk assessment by nature cannot be precise, but good measurements may sometimes be the only way to save old trees from being cut unnecessarily. But as soon as you want to have absolute values, absolute measures, you have to take into account all these things are about errors, error propagation, precision, reliability, and variance. And you still should be honest and say that the final evaluation of a tree is stable or not is strongly influenced by mostly hidden subjective decisions, even if based on highly sophisticated machines. Because we cannot calculate the strength of the trees correctly, we have to focus more really on the visual inspection to see if there are signs of overload and compensatory growth. It's easy to decide the tree to to be cut down. It's much more difficult and probably unsafe to say the tree can still stand there. But for that, a proper use of technical equipment is really very helpful. But... I must say there is no single method, there is no single machine that really solves all the problems. For different trees you need different machines and you need different approaches since no one can handle all these machines in the same company, probably big companies but small expert companies not. Take the other expert, uh, ask other experts for their expertise and uh, their help if you need a specific, uh, specific equipment. If you have only a drill, for example, you cannot inspect everything. It doesn't work. Just. Don't overstress technical equipment. And in addition, I must conclude, there is a lot of future research needed. A lot of them already started, for example, with Ken James this morning, which was really a wonderful example. And I think there is a lot of things to be done in the near future, and I hope the Tree Fund will go on uh, funding that. And in addition, probably we should give George Bush some additional CEUs. He (laughs) caught it. And um, finally, try to explain our chancellor how the tree rings are growing here in the United States. And once again, I want to uh, give great honor to Alex Schaigo. I met him several times, and he always said, "Read, read, read." And in a German conference, one expert stood up, asked a question, and Shigo said, "The answer to your question, I wrote, uh, I read in a book." from a German forestry from a guy from 1880. So you should just go back, read your books of your own language and get trained and educated and hurry up because who comes too late will probably have a problem to catch the train of agriculture in time. Thank you very much.
0: Yes, has there been any, any correlation between tree failure and uh, soil moisture content? It oh yes. It seems to me after a good yes, soaking Yeah. Okay. there is a strong
1: correlation, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We have a strong influence. There is a big difference if you are measuring after one month of drought and uh, then after one month of rain. Yeah. Strong difference. Yeah. Difference more than 100% in strength. I, I, I would suspect yeah. so. Thank you. Yeah.
0: This concludes Dr. Frank Rinn's talk on Can Anyone Calculate Tree Stability? If you would like to learn more on wind and trees or tree failures, The ISA offers several other books on these topics, and they can be found at the ISA website, isa-arbor.com. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series at the ISA office, or me, Tom Smiley, the host of this series at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast series, now available through iTunes, and join us next time for another Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer. Every day, climb with the ISA.